This is a Federal News Network podcast. Congress returns to town this week, and of course, everyone is in a tizzy over the Supreme Court vacancy. But the outcome there is fairly predictable, actually. More uncertain is what they'll do about the federal budget and a few of what should be bread and butter issues. We get more now from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And that's my take, Mitchell, that this is predictable. There will be a song and dance, but the Biden nominee for the Supreme Court will be confirmed in the end. Fair to say. I think that's fair to say. But it will chew up a lot of additional time for the U.S. Senate. And, of course, even though we're early in the year, believe it or not, as you know, (laughs) congressional deadlines are always seeming to be around the corner. And this is another one where Congress is just pushing it. A lot of work to take place starting this week, coming off of the break with the House and Senate both out last week. And if Congress is going to somehow avoid another continuing resolution, they're really going to have to get busy this week. Staff work, of course, continued last week, but there's going to have to be a big push now from the top appropriators on the House and Senate, including Senators Patrick Leahy and Richard Shelby. Shelby has not been quite as bullish as Patrick Leahy has been about reaching some kind of overall deal. The House, as usual, ahead of the Senate, has so far passed nine out of the 12 appropriations bills for funding the government for fiscal 2022. But the Senate has not brought any appropriation bills to the floor, and lawmakers are still trying to figure out that top-line spending figure. There is some optimism. If once they could get to that figure, a lot of other things could come into place. But there's really a general agreement here that leaders don't want a year-long continuing resolution. The military branches have been raising concerns about another CR and how it would hurt their long-term planning. And in fact, a top Navy official last week just noted that the Navy could face a half-billion-dollar shortfall for its ballistic missile submarine program, among other things, if this is going to continue into a longer CR. So a lot of moving parts as usual here. Yes, and then there's the Russian situation, which has some military on high alert in some parts of our military. You know, over there, there's some troops on high alert. And if the Russians are going to do anything, they're going to do it soon, because if they wait till spring, their tanks will get stuck in the mud. Exactly. And then you also have the Olympics getting underway soon in China. And of course, Russia and China have their own relationship there. So it's really going to be interesting to see what the military is going to have to do in connection with all those developments overseas. So therefore, Congress is going to have to do a couple triple axle backflips to get some budget (laughs) over there so they can get into shape. All right. So there's the budget issue. And again, as you say, there are a lot of cycles of mind taken up with the Supreme Court. And what about nominations otherwise? Because there's still a slew of them sitting before the Senate. There are. And the Senate has really moved through a lot of the judicial lower level nominations through. So they've gotten dozens of those through. But they're stacking up and they do have to get those through. And to get back to your issue in connection with the Supreme Court nominee, as you know, that there's only so much time on the Senate calendar because you have all these breaks throughout the year. And nominations is one that dominates the time now in the Senate floor. And so they have to get those through. And then they have to schedule, of course, the hearing and have meetings with lawmakers in connection with whoever the nominee is once the president names the nominee. And then you have all the other regular machinations going on with just the normal budgetary situation. So all of those nominations are going to be piling up as well. So the Senate's really going to have to get on the stick here. And it's fair to say, too, in regard to that, that the Supreme Court nomination, every committee is going to want to hear from the Supreme Court nominee because whatever the Supreme Court touches will have something to do with that committee. It's unlike, say, getting a general approved. 
And the Judiciary Committee is not going to give a darn about that one. Right, exactly. So all of these lawmakers are going to want a piece of this. We have all these pending issues before the high court. And even though this is in historic terms, the retirement of Stephen Breyer is relatively long range. I mean, usually, as we've noted in the last few years, things happen rather suddenly. Obviously, with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she died and things changed very, very quickly. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has indicated he wants to get the nominee, whoever it may be, on a fast track once that happens. As you may remember, of course, Amy Coney Barrett, the latest justice to join the high court, she was basically confirmed in just over a month. That was one of the quickest ever. So the Senate wants to move this, at least Senate Democrats want to move this through fairly quickly. But there are things that the Republicans, of course, can do to slow the gears and not move this through so quickly. I think we'll see some of that. And then that will all play in with these other issues with the nominations at different levels as well as the budgetary situation. We're speaking with WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller and droning on and on in the background of all this is uncertainty over the federal vaccine mandate and it's been struck down at the lower court level and funny it could be the Supreme Court has to hear that one also and what is likely to happen, if anything, on the Hill with respect to that issue that won't die? Well, it's interesting because that issue actually could come into play in connection with the continuing resolution and efforts to get the budget moved forward. There has been some noise from some House Republicans and other conservatives who say that if the funding for federal vaccine mandates is included in the latest spending plan, that they will try to hold it up. Now, whether they would actually go toe-to-toe with Democrats and say, we're going to have a shutdown over this, remains to be seen, but certainly that is always a possibility. We always know that as we get closer in the coming weeks, that shutdown will at least be mentioned as people try to get some political leverage on various issues. But in terms of the agencies themselves and in terms of the military, it seems like everything is effectively on pause right now in terms of the mandate because of that ruling from the uh, judge in Texas that they are holding off on moving toward any kind of discipline for a lot of people as this gets resolved. Now, the White House has said that it's confident it is going to basically have a supportive ruling ultimately on this issue. That still is unclear. But at any rate, the judge also who made that ruling, it's interesting, noted that the vast majority of people that were affected by this federal mandate actually have been vaccinated. So the judge actually pointed out that it's not going to have quite as much of an impact as many people might think. But nonetheless, it's still a huge issue as to whether or not this goes forward. Well, in Washington, people like to argue even over moot issues. So why not (laughs) this one also? Exactly. (laughs) And then behind all of that is the pieces and chunks, I think, as the president and some of the Democrats have called them, of the Build Back Better plan, which did not pass last year. And will that eat up cycles on the Hill to try to get maybe pieces of it done? Well, it's interesting. Yeah, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi recently said chunks. That's an interesting term that the president used. But at any rate, that was the one that President Biden used a few weeks ago. And they are trying to figure out, are these parts of the Build Back Better plan somehow going to move forward? And really, right now, there is not a specific plan to move forward. Now, House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer was optimistic last week in an interview with Politico saying that he thinks it can be brought back. But right now, there is no game plan, if you 
you will, for how that would happen. And there's different opinions about how it could happen. It's interesting. I was talking with Virginia Senator Mark Warner, who's been deeply involved with these budget talks over many, many months. And he is one of those who is skeptical of breaking it apart into those chunks too much, because basically he points out and House Speaker Pelosi pointed this out as well, that if you do that, then you lose the fact that you can get it through reconciliation on only 50 votes. And Democrats, they have enough trouble getting their own 50 votes, much less getting any Republican votes. So once you split this up and try to say, well, we're going to extend the child tax credit, which incidentally, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin remains opposed to bringing in into part of the Build Back Better plan. You know, if you try to break all of this up, then you have to start working on getting at least 10 Republicans to avoid a filibuster. So given that, along with the fact that you do have this Supreme Court nominee now getting into the lifeblood of Congress here, it's just really hard to see where Democrats are going to go with this. They're going to continue to talk about it and say that, you know, they want to move it forward and it's going to be a talking point for sure. But I think it's going to be very difficult for them to get the nitty gritty of this done, at least in the uh, coming weeks and months. Now, one last point related to that is when I did talk to Senator Warner, he kind of hinted that there might be something in the works, maybe a smaller package that might be coming sometime in the next few weeks or months. We'll have to keep an eye on that. All right. So no chunks with your nitty gritty. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) There's a song in there somewhere, Tom. I think so. We'll have to start a band. (laughs) Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. Thanks so much. You bet. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader 
that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect 
as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.